Low Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Hello and welcome to episode 177 of Who Killed. I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media and Killer Podcast production. I'd like to start off by thanking the people who stopped by my table at CrimeCon 2022 in Vegas this past weekend. This year's event was fantastic, and I really enjoyed talking with the listeners, and it was a great opportunity to let some new people in on the show, and it was also great to see a lot of my podcast friends, such as Nick and the Captain, of course, and the Crawl Space guys, Tim and Lance, James Renner, obviously, Aaron and Justin from Generation Y. I did get the chance to meet, finally, in person, Kelsey German, as well as Sarah Turney. They have been on Who Killed many times, so it was great to finally meet them in person. And again, I'm not going to go on too long about the event, but if it is something that you're interested in attending, there will be another one in September of 2023, and that will be in Orlando. And it definitely is a true crime bucket list thing, if that's your thing. So I would also like to thank... Evergreen Podcasts, as well as David and Gerardo in particular for making the weekend seriously a memorable one. And I think we've networked with a lot of great people. And again, many thanks to all the people who played a role in the weekend. And shout out to the California Pizza Kitchen at Vegas Airport for making my day of travel misery not so terrible. Good people equals good times. And the networking never ended. So it's always fun. So let's get to the news this week because it's been one for the ages. And typically, as you guys know, I like to focus on one case and stick with quote-unquote evergreen stories. But this week made me go from researching Patrick Kearney, who is an awful and terrible individual, to diving back into cases that I've already covered See, Kearney, he was a serial killer, and I will discuss him in these future episodes. But as a listener, I thought you guys might want to hear about the newest information on some of the major crimes that have been updated just this week. And basically, let's just start with the most important one, and that is the fact that prosecutors have announced that the Madeline McCann case has been solved. I'm going to say, quote-unquote, solved, but, you know, it again, it is, we'll read from the mail, or from the Sun here out of the UK, where they write, quote, Madeline McCann case may finally be solved as Christian B. will stand trial after being named a suspect, ex-Met cop says. Now, this was written by Tom Hussey just this past week, and he writes, the mystery of the Madeline McCann's disappearance may finally be solved after 15 years as formal suspect Christian B. will face trial. A former Met cop has said, Jim Gamble, the founding CEO of Child Exploitation and Online Protection Center, told Radio Forest Today program how a raft of extremely strong new evidence from the Tots' 2007 disappearance will undoubtedly result in a trial. Now, he was asked if there was a real chance of a court case where the evidence will be heard, and Mr. Gamble said, I do. I think we are heading in that direction. Now, it comes as this person had finally been officially declared a suspect by the prosecutors in Portugal. And 
these are the guys that have been investigating the case since the beginning, which is about 15 years old. And again, the Portuguese police did not actually name Christian B as the POI, but pretty much everybody knows that the 45-year-old convicted child rapist is the number one suspect. So that's kind of where that stands. Now, he has been formally and charged as a suspect, and that is someone who is treated by Portuguese police as more than a witness, but has not been arrested or charged. Now, a Portuguese source added that, quote, the legal grounds for making Christian B suspect include the fact that he allegedly confessed to a friend he had snatched Madeline and mobile phone records placed him in the Prada de Las the night she vanished. It is the first time prosecutors in Portugal have actually identified an official suspect. And now this is since Madeline and Kate, you know, her parents, Kate and Jerry, were named suspects 15 years ago. Now, just imagine being named suspects as parents and then 15 years go by and now they have somebody in custody. So it's one of those crazy stories. Mr. Gamble even brings up the false storms which have plagued the Maddie mystery, but said this is not just another case plucked out of the pile. He told the show, quote, this could be everything or it could be nothing. Quote, Portuguese police would not be taking this step unless they had considered all the evidence that had been shared with them. Explaining the developments, Mr. Gamble did go on to say that the telephones that the suspects used in the area at the time of the disappearance had not been interrogated or investigated. This has been one of the major flaws and was now being looked at, and it's helped actually gather uh, significant evidence that will lead to a trial. He went on to explain, quote, It's very interesting that a phone which can be attributed to the suspect can be placed within the proximity of the actual crime scene, within about a 30-minute window. Quote, When you talk about circumstantial evidence, an individual piece by itself may mean little. But when you take all these factors together, this seems like a really strong case. And that is why I don't think it is just procedural ticking the box to make sure that they don't miss out on basic because of the limitations. Now, this was, of course, he's this quote was kind of long winded. And he's basically explaining how if they wouldn't have charged him as a suspect, they wouldn't have been able to do so again. Moving forward, something different with the laws. I think it's once you bring him up, he needs to be charged within a certain time frame. So, again, there was some pressure put on the police, and I believe that, you know, the question was worthy of asking, was this a driven thing, a time-driven thing, or did you actually come across something new? Because we've seen it a lot in the Amy Mahalovic case, where it just so happens to be a great time of year to produce a story about the case, so you get good ratings, hence Sweeps Week and all that other fun stuff that gets thrown into the, you know the mix of when this information is released. But this isn't one of those cases, and I don't believe um, the Portuguese police would have named the suspect if they didn't really believe it. And Mr. Gimble, Gamble did go on to express his confidence in the police's ability to finally solve the case. Mr. Gamble said, quote, I think this is a growing case, and we should not under, underestimate the German police. Quote, I do think the circumstantial evidence that I know exists is extremely strong. I think there could be additional information, and to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if charges follow. He said this is partly down to the fact 
that for the first time, all the evidence from the disappearance are going to be considered together. Now, of course, he's being optimistic. And one former cop said, I don't believe the Portuguese would be taking this step at the level they have if there wasn't a credible case. Now, again, in 2020, this is when the suspect actually became known to the media. Uh, He did deny any involvement. Now, he is serving a prison sentence for other other offenses in Germany because the German was also given a seven-year term for raping a 72-year-old woman in Portugal, which is just disgusting, and it's, you know, for all the reasons, it's terrible. But as of April in 2021, the UK police said that the investigation cost them more than £12.5 million at this point. So the Scotland Yard investigation of the disappearance was launched on May 12, 2011, but it is actually due to close in 2022. A source told The Sun, quote, there are currently no plans to take the inquiry any further. So that's just very interesting way to end that one sort of article because, you know, The Sun is known for their wild stories and, you know, their coverage has been really spot on with Mad- uh, with the Madeline case. Um whether or not they get everything right all the time. I think that goes for any newspaper, especially when they're trying to break news. But it is interesting that they did charge this guy, but they're saying that it had nothing to do with the fact that they were running out of time before they could charge him. So, again, this is from CNN, and they say, you know, this one's titled, New Evidence Found in the McCann Case as Prosecutor is Sure Suspect Killed British Girl. Now, this came just a few days ago and says a German prosecutor has said he is sure that Madeleine McCann, the British girl who disappeared from a resort in Portugal in 2007 at the age of three, was killed by the suspect Christian Bruckner. Hans Christian Walters, who is investigating the case, went on to tell the Portuguese broadcaster CMTV that investigators had found new evidence and they believe that it connects the convicted rapist to the child's disappearance. Now, again, as I mentioned before, he has not actually been charged. But this investigator says, quote, the investigation is still ongoing, and I think we found some new facts, some new evidence. Not forensic evidences, but some evidence. And now this was, again, according to the investigator, Walters. And Walters did go on to say, we are sure... He is the murderer of Madeline McCann. Now, Walters was speaking on the 15th anniversary of the disappearance of Madeline, who was also affectionately known as Maddie. Again, this is from CNN. Now, again, we've covered this case. The captain came on. We discussed it a couple years ago. I think anybody who is involved with the true crime world knows about this case. I mean, it's really the number one missing persons case in the whole entire country, whole entire world. So it is pretty big news. And again, she went missing from a hotel room in May of 2007. And that was at Praia de Dalus in the Algarve region. And that was again, while they were on vacation with friends and, 
You know, it was last month that the officials from Germany and Portugal did name Bruckner as the uh, suspect, as an official suspect. Now, it has taken a couple of years for them to get to this point, but it is the first time since, like I mentioned, that they've named Kate and Jerry as suspects, that they've actually put somebody else up in front of the spotlight. So, a little bit about Bruckner. Bruckner, who is 45. Now, he had previously said he had been with his then-girlfriend during the whole night on which Madeline went missing, but apparently he had no alibi. When asked if his team of investigators had found something belonging to Maddie in Bruckner's caravan, where he lived at the time, Walter said he couldn't comment on any details, but added, I don't want to, to deny it. So Bruckner is currently in jail in Germany, as I mentioned, for raping that 72-year-old woman. Now, he's, again, been connected to a number of other crimes, and he had burgled hotels as well as holiday flats, and he was caught stealing diesel from a Portuguese harbor and falsifying passports. So the guy has pretty much been all over this story. So that's really huge breaking news, and I just wanted to play you guys a couple clips from the BBC and Great Britain this morning because it just gives you a little insight because these people have been following this case ever since day one. 15 years ago to the day, three-year-old Madeleine McCann disappeared from the hotel room in Pride de Luge where her family were holidaying. The next morning, a concerned family friend called into GMTV and the British public heard Madeleine's name for the very first time. Okay, well, we've got some more uh, breaking news for you this morning. Very serious story is developing and is coming through to us. And it's that a three-year-old British girl has gone missing in Portugal. It's thought that she may have been abducted. Her parents discovered she was missing after returning to their hotel room in the Mark Warner Resort, a prize to lose in the west of the Algarve. Now, the parents have left the girl and at least one other child asleep in their bedroom while they were elsewhere in the hotel. We can speak now to Jill Rennick. Who, uh, who's a family friend. Good to speak to you this morning. Sorry, since such circumstances as these, what can you tell us about what happened? Hi. Um, just as you said, but they were just you know, watching the, the hotel room um, and going back every half hour, and the shutters have been broken open, and they've gone into the room and taken Madeline. Well, Madeline's disappearance still remains a mystery. Mark Williams-Thomas has followed the story closely over the years. He's here with us now. I think now, by now, sadly, pretty much everybody knows um, the events of, of her disappearance. Yeah. How did the proceedings progress over the first few weeks? So, 3rd of May 2007, Madeline disappears, and initially the local police turn up. They do some kind of crime scene preservation, but it's quite limited, mm. and a lot of people are in and out of the apartment. So those initial forensic elements are lost. They then called in the PJ, who come from Lisbon, into it, and they start a bigger investigation. The biggest problem is for, the, for a force like that is that the investigation of a child abduction is very rare. Child abductions are, by their very nature, very rare. And as a result of that, some of the early inquiries that they should have done weren't done. So the whole area wasn't secured. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a fingertip search taking place. Some of the house-to-house -house inquiries weren't done. I was on the ground within 72 hours, and it was really obvious that the police were really struggling. Their initial focus was child abduction by, by a stranger. 
But what they fail to do is to look at those people who are most likely to be involved, which is those people who know Madeleine, connected members of the family or associated people who were there at the time. And because they failed to do that, they did the hardest bit first of all, and then they went completely where they should have started after that. And that caused a huge problem and lost a lot of evidence. Well, they, that's right, because the, the sort of weeks after the disappearance, and then that turns into months and there's no suspects. And then the police started to look at Kate and Jerry McCann themselves. Absolutely. And what they should have done is looked at them straight away, along with the Tapas group and anybody else who was connected to the Mark Warner resort. Those were your key people. And what we call it in policing terms is clearing the ground from underneath your mm. feet. It's looking at those people who are most likely. Because... Stranger abductions are incredibly rare. We look at it in the cases in the UK, and we, they all come to mind straight away. Sarah Payne, Jeanette Tate, those are the cases we know about because they are incredibly rare. Uh, and because you're looking at someone who is an absolute opportunistic, just simply turns up on the mm. occasion. Sadly, 15 years on, we're no further forward. Millions of pounds have been spent by this. The Home Office uh, asked the Metropolitan Police to take on an investigation, Operation Grange. That's finally now coming to an end because the finances have run out. We've got the Portuguese, the PJ, who have continued to look at this, but have really made very little progress right from day one. We've had two lots of aguidos in this. So an aguido is a suspect status. So in, in essence, it's about saying we think this person's got something to do with it or at least they have some serious questions to answer and we're going to put a formal status in relation to that. Mm. So initially we had Robert Murat who was put into the frame. He was a local man. He was mm -hmm. put into the frame by journalists, in fact. He became an aguido. He got eliminated. Then Jerry and Kate became aguidos. They got eliminated. And in the last week, we've now learned that Christian B, who is this suspect from the German authorities, has now been made an aguido. We'll, uh, we'll come to him uh, in a moment because there's a number of, uh, number of various different opinions on him. Back to Jerry and Kate, who, as you say, um, were found to be innocent. The, yep. the, the, any of the evidence against them was incredibly flimsy. There are still today, it'll be happening right now, every single time we mention Madeleine yep. on this programme, there are people who jump online yep. and some are incredibly cruel who still have it in their heads that they were involved. Phil, we've spoken about it, haven't we? How many times, when we come and talk about it, we get inundated by people who are very critical of us about saying, you know, Jerry and Kate have got some involvement in this. The reality is, is the evidence against them doesn't exist. There were questions, of course, they were put, that were put to them, but they haven't answered. But you have to put it into a context that these are people who are finding themselves in a situation that nobody else would ever want to be in. Their whole behaviour changes. There's no normal way to no. behave when your child goes missing. You're dealing with adrenaline, you're dealing with all the issues around that, and the world's media as well. Yeah. So you put that into a context. There's no normal way to behave. They were under immense pressure. They didn't want to answer those questions because they really didn't know where this was going. Yeah. Were yeah. they going to be put under the frame by the Portuguese and were they going to be prosecuted in relation to that? And, of course, that's why they ended up needing to get out of the country. They've been very clearly exonerated by the police over in Portugal and saying they've got nothing to do with this. The sad reality is, is the large majority of the members of the public who are utterly supportive of Jerry and Kate... The reality is, is that, yes, they left Madeline in the apartment. I've been very outspoken about that. They shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't have done that. They have to live with the consequences of that. Wow, which is hard But the enough. reality is, is that it wasn't them as a result. You know, Madeline ended up being taken. And it could have happened at any stage. Um, let's go back to Christian then now, because um, let's just... Why is he in the frame for this? Why is he a suspect? So Christian B was put in the frame 
approximately two years ago by the German prosecutor. Mm -hmm. Now, he is a German national, and the German prosecutor says, and rightly so, is that any offence committed by a German national in a foreign country can be prosecuted. They've looked at it, and because a telephone number has been really significantly pulled up in terms of the data that was found outside Madeline's apartment, they have then looked at that and said, well, that belongs to Christian B. Which places him there? Which places him there? Now, that's the story, that's the narrative that's come from the German prosecutor, is that on the night of Madeline's disappearance, Christian B was using a telephone outside the apartment, talking to another number, and that makes him connected. There is a massive problem with this because as a result of my investigation, I can tell you very clearly that neither can they place him using that phone outside the apartment on the evening. Nobody places him there, but it gets worse than that. They can't even place him using that phone in the days and the weeks prior to that. And nobody other than one person has come forward and said that he had access and was using that phone. If you or I there's a telephone number put out into the public domain, we'd obviously use that telephone number. You'd expect lots of people to come forward and say, yeah, that telephone number belongs to Holly. I've spoken to her numerous mm -hmm. times on that. They've got one person who's come forward and said that. So um, the, the Mirror have got a sort of different slant on, uh, on this today. Um, he claims uh, that uh, he was having sex with a woman in his camper van miles away at the time Madeline vanished. Uh, Bruckner said that they were stopped and photographed at a police roadblock the following day on the way to Faro Airport. He claimed the woman was arrested at the airport for carrying a pepper spray. However, the Mirror claims to have uncovered the arrest report, which shows that the woman was detained on May the 10th. That's a week after Madeleine vanished. And the uh, paper also revealed that uh, she has been interviewed by German investigators who concluded that she cannot provide Bruckner with an alibi for May the 3rd. So what we know is that she was stopped at the airport on the 10th of May. We've got that record. He was seeing her for that week over the period of the 3rd of May up to the 10th. She was going home at the 10th. He, we don't have a direct alibi on the night of the 3rd of May, so we don't have anything saying he's categorically with her. But what we do have is over that period of that time, because she's been spoken to, is that she was with him. She categorically was with him. And when the, in the days after Madeline's disappearance, so the 4th, 5th, 6th, we can't be sure, he was stopped in that vehicle with her on a completely separate occasion to the 10th of going to the airport. He was stopped with her in his camper van and the vehicle was searched. And but she not confirmed on the third. that. Not he on the he's third. got no alibi still for the third. We, can't, we cannot confirm. His alibi, he says he was with her. He said he went and saw her every night. But we can't independently verify that because neither he nor her can say categorically on the 3rd of May, <laughs> I was with her. What they both say is that during that period of time, between the 3rd and the 10th, most of those nights, if not every night, we did sleep together in the camper van. There is a lot of discussion about timing uh, here because um, Portugal has a 15-year statute of limitations for crimes mm. with a maximum prison sentence of 10 years or more. So um, he's been reintroduced. Yeah. Um, potentially because of that timing? Yeah, the, Get the, in before the 15 years? The is 15 up? years is really significant. So any crime of serious nature that's committed, a period of 15 years, it, it ends a statute of limitation, which is mad, really. So if you have a murder that's committed, at the end of 15 years, you won't get prosecuted for it unless, unless proceedings have begun. So what's happened is that the Portuguese now obviously dealing with this as a murder. Because if it was an abduction, it's an open case and there's no statute of limitation exists with that. So there has to be a finite, finite point to which that statute begins, which would be a murder. 
So what they're saying is that, yes, we now are going to be on board and we agree this is murder and we're going to work with a statute of limitation. And if we put him as far as proceedings begin, that statute of limitation doesn't apply. So as long as it's come in, you put them under an aguido status prior to that 15 years beginning, you can continue to do it. What's really interesting, and I was with the German prosecutor over the summer, and we you know, had a good relationship, we've shared everything we've got with him, is that he was very clearly saying the relationship between us and, um, us and Portugal is very poor. All of the communication they were having to do was having to be done by the British, and the British were then passing the information on That's to crazy, the Portuguese. It? It's a three-way process which wasn't working. Mm. Um, last night, on the eve of the anniversary uh, today, um, Kate and Jeremy McCann released uh, a post onto Facebook. They said, this year we marked 15 years since we last saw Madeleine. It's a very long time. Many people talk about the need for closure. It's always felt like a strange term. Regardless of outcome, Madeleine will always be our daughter and a truly horrific crime has been committed. These things will remain. They also express gratitude to authorities for their ongoing work and their supporters for their continued good wishes. It is a huge comfort to know that regardless of time pass, Madeleine is still in people's hearts and minds. Thank you, is what they said. Well, our thoughts are with them. I suppose, you know, and obviously any parent faced with a horror like this is going to have hope and yeah. hope that one day, by some sort of miracle, she'll be found safe and well. Yeah. I mean, Jerry and Kate are living their life through the worlds of, of other people's eyes, aren't they? Mm. I mean, to have a child who goes missing and to, to the worldwide to recognise that, you know, their grief is their grief, but everybody else is involved in that as well. So that the, it's really more complicated. I think the problem, of course, for Jerry and Kate and for any parent that loses a child where they don't know what the outcome is, i.e. a child hasn't been found, they live in hope. Of course they live in hope, because if they give up hope, then what hope is there? So they have to remain that hope. They are realistic that they realise, as time goes on, and we're now 15 years, the likelihood of, of Madeline being found is, is almost zero, if not, it is zero, because evidentially-wise, there isn't a single case across the world where a child has gone missing at age three in the circumstances like this and never turned up. You know, you look at all the proof-of-life inquiries, which is what we do from a murder investigation to establish whether or not someone is dead, all of those proof-of-life inquiries show that there is no existence after the period of time of the 3rd of May. There is no, no track record in any way at all. And evidentially-wise, from an abduction point of view and child murders, evidence tells us that the likelihood is that she would have been killed within 72 hours of her disappearance. That's a oh, horrifying That really is. Um, have hope. Madeleine right. McCann, the case against Christian B is next Wednesday at 9 on Channel 5. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Now, this wasn't the only major case to see some justice, and this was the case of the Girl Scout murders from 1977. Now, I'm not totally sure because I've done so many episodes if I've covered this case or not. So I wanted to give you guys a little bit of background. And I found a great article from Ranker.com written by Kat McAuliffe titled 12 Facts About the Unsolved Oklahoma Girl Scout Murders. Well, unsolved until this week. Now, she goes on to write that in the summer of 1977, there were three Girl Scouts, uh, Lori Farmer, Michelle Goose, and Doris Milner. Now, these girls were murdered and assaulted on the first night of Camp Scott in Mays County, Oklahoma. Could you imagine dropping your child off and having them be murdered within hours? Just a parent's worst nightmare. Not that Kate and Jerry McCann aren't going through the same thing. It's just horrific. But this case is from 1977. So it's even 
more shocking that there is some resolution. So the bodies were actually found discarded, you know, across the one was in the tent, uh, another one was dumped not far from the cookie trail, and that was the main road into the Girl Scout camp. And you know, decades later, Oklahomans, this is what Kat had written, and people all around the world are fascinated by details about the Girl Scout murders. Many people, including ministers and convicted criminals, have contacted law enforcement and the media to provide the names of the people that they believe killed the girls. While some people think they know exactly who killed the Oklahoma Girl Scouts, no one has ever been convicted of the crimes. The unsolved Girl Scout murders remain some of the state's most disturbing unsolved cases. So that was just a little bit of background from Kat. And again, this was June 13, 1977, and that was when Lori, Heather, and Doris were all dropped off at Camp Scott in Mays County. Now that evening, around 6 p.m., the girls, you know, like you do at camp, they had met earlier in the day. They went and sought shelter in their tent, number eight, and the following morning, around 6, this is when the counselors discovered a lifeless body of the three girls. I mean, all of them had been sexually assaulted and beaten. Now, Farmer had, and Goose had been bludgeoned to death while Milner had been killed via a strangulation. Two of the girls had been raped while the other had been sodomized. After the Girl Scouts were murdered, their corpses were shoved into sleeping bags and then left on a trail approximately 150 yards from the tent the three of them had shared. So that's pretty creepy. And Ranker goes on to say, here's another fact, is that a counselor was actually warned about the killings before they had happened. Now, this could be hearsay, but it says that in April, two months before Farmer Goose and Milner were murdered, there was a training session held at Camp Scott. Now, the weekend ended early when a counselor's cabin had been ransacked, but there was a disturbing note that they found in an empty box, and the hand notes said, quote, we are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. Now, someone had also created an effigy of a man, which they hanged from a tree by its neck. While both the effigy and the note were strange and upsetting, the letter also mentioned Martians, so, you know, I mean, let's just say what it is. Probably nothing and a little bit too uh, poetic for this particular situation. Now, the most important fact that we need to discuss here is that there was an escaped murderer that was on the loose. And basically what happened was when the Girl Scouts were murdered, escaped convict Jean Leroy Hart was on the loose in Mays County. Now, Hart had been convicted of kidnapping two pregnant women. He raped one of them, and yeah, he had escaped police custody in 73, and this was four years prior to the murders of the Girl Scouts. But after they were killed, law enforcement began to suspect Hart. Now, I'm just going to jump out and say it and probably say what you're thinking, and that is, well, what the hell were they doing for the four years while he was missing? Were they searching for this guy, or were they just whatever? Because apparently, you know, they name him as a suspect, and boom, uh, they are able to somehow track him down, I guess. But anyway, that's a whole other 
thing for law enforcement to deal with and not what we deal with. So it actually was approximately 10 months after they were murdered where a tip led police to a cabin in Cherokee County. Now, this is where they did arrest Hart on April 6, 1978. Now, this is where it gets weird. He was tried for the murders of the Girl Scouts, but a jury found him not guilty. But he did return to prison for his original crimes, and he did die there on June 4th, 1979. Now, Ranker, at this point in time, they said a woman may have been involved with the killings. Quote, in 2008, DNA tests were performed on biological evidence collected from a pillowcase found at the Camp Scott crime scene, revealing a partial female DNA profile. Experts determined this female DNA profile didn't come from two of the murder victims, although they were unable to conclusively exclude the third girl as the source of the biological evidence. Okay, this may be a stretch. So I think given that we know it is a stretch. But Cherry Farmer told a newspaper, and that's one of the mothers, I've always felt in my gut that there was a girl present. Given the DNA results, you have to wonder if there wasn't also a female who took part in the murders. And that would be a great question to ask the uh, person that has been named the uh, murderer. So, something interesting, another thing that you would expect, at least you would hope. The day after the murders, they evacuated the camp, and it was shut down. And it had been open since 1928, but it does remain closed to this day. And of course, the site is visited frequently by ghost hunters and paranormal enthusiasts, who claim that the area is now haunted by the three Girl Scouts. But the new owners appear to have done little, if anything, with the property. There's a picnic table and a stone fireplace and yada, yada, yada. Now, then there's the report that four men may have killed the Girl Scouts. In 1989, Reverend Gerald Manley contacted the authorities to say he thought four men were responsible for ending the lives of the three girls. He said that... He provided law enforcement with the names of two of the people he thought killed them. And while officials investigated the tip, um, they were unable to link the men to the murders. Now, Manley did go on to say that he went to Camp Scott with four men who he claimed said he needed Christian influence. And so he had seen one of the dead bodies. And basically, that's why he needed the help of the reverend. Now, while police were never able to make heads or tails of the reverend's story. The reverend did pass a lie detector test when questioned about his claims and also provided the same account under hypnosis. And this is according to the same article. It's pretty interesting stuff there. Now, here's the best part. So the DNA was collected at the crime scene. Like we mentioned before, there was apparently female DNA. But we don't know if that female DNA had anything to do with the murders or not. But... Ranker goes on to say that in addition to the biological evidence recovered from the crime scene, the authorities also found semen on a pillowcase that was delivered or discovered near the victim's bodies. Now, the FBI tested the sample in 1989, and they were able to, actually they were unable to rule out Jean Leroy Hart as a person who left the bodily fluids. The test was inconclusive. They were unable to definitively match the convicted kidnapper and rapist to the Girl Scout murders. Now, in 2008, authorities decided to test the semen again in hopes of getting more conclusive tests. Unfortunately, the DNA sample was simply too degraded for technicians to create a profile of the person who left it. 
Now, that also meant that Hart still wasn't ruled out, and despite being found not guilty, many people remained convinced he committed the killings. So multiple people heard noises the night of the murder. And again, this is one of the 12 facts from Ranker.com. So on the night that the girls were murdered, several campers and counselors at the Camp Scott had heard some what they called disturbing noises. And this was around 1.30 a.m., where multiple people heard moaning coming from the direction of the murdered girls' sleeping quarters, tent number eight. A counselor investigated the noises but couldn't find the source, so she went back to sleep. But it was approximately 30 minutes later when a camper in tent number seven was awoken when someone with a flashlight opened the flap to the tent. At around 3 a.m., a Girl Scout heard a scream come from the section of a camp where tent number eight was located. At approximately the same time, another camper heard a scream followed by someone crying, Mama, Mama. Unsure what the girl to do, the Girl Scout went back to sleep. Okay, so let's just pull back and think about this for a second. You're a girl, even if you're a boy, you're at camp, and you're there for the first night. And the first night you're there, you start to hear screaming and moaning. Yeah. I'm calling mom and dad the next day and I'm getting the fuck out of town. That's all I'm saying. Because that stuff's scary. And yeah, when you find out what happened the next day, there's no way I'd be staying at that camp any longer. So again, as I mentioned, it was the summer of 1977 when all three of these girls were brutally murdered. So after the the counselor discovered the bodies... It was just one of those things where everybody in the city and everybody in the surrounding areas basically joined up, began a wild search party. And it was one of those cases where you had zero answers. You had a guy that you thought most likely did it, but you kept running into these situations where, one, there was a trial where he was found not guilty. So I don't know how double jeopardy works in that regard. Can they bring different charges to him? I'm not entirely sure. But the fact that he was found not guilty certainly does not help the investigators or any of the other things that should have happened. So it's kind of wild and kind of sad that it took this long to reach a resolution. This is 45 years in the making. So Madeline, 15, Girl Scout murders, 45. So, pretty crazy, pretty wild week. I do want to play a news clip here from the Girl Scout murders and the new evidence that they have come out with this week, as well as the fact that they have said that the case is solved, and that person is Gene Leroy Hart. So all those cases that they had, all those trials, all those suspects, all those witnesses they weren't wrong and they actually had their man but apparently they didn't do a good enough job getting the jury to go along with them so enjoy this clip from the local news about the closure of the girl scout murders we have new information this evening in the 1977 Girl Scout murders that shocked all of Green Country and the nation. No one has ever been convicted, but investigators say new DNA testing has ruled out every single possible suspect except one. 
Three young girls, you'll remember, Lori Farmer, Michelle Gousset, and Denise Milner, were raped and murdered at camp in Mays County. Evidence was recently retested for DNA, and the results are now being made public for the first time ever. News on 6's Reagan Ledbetter has been working on this story for months and has this exclusive information. Reagan. Lori, Mays County Sheriff Mike Reed has spent the last nine years digging into this case after Lori Farmer's parents asked him to give, a, get a, the, uh, give the case a fresh set of eyes. Now, he says every single piece of DNA evidence has been accounted for, and he says there's no doubt in his mind that evidence shows Jean Leroy Hart is the killer. Jean Leroy Hart was arrested, then tried, and acquitted for the brutal murders in 1978. Sheriff Reed says DNA evidence wasn't available to the jury in 1978, but if it was, Reed has no doubt Hart would have been convicted. I pray that the family, there's something that we've done that gives the family a second of something that even resembles closure or acceptance or something. I pray that. But as far as peace, there is absolutely nothing about this case that has given me one second of peace, period. Reed says the facts go far beyond DNA evidence. He says Hart was a textbook serial rapist who had been convicted of kidnapping and raping two pregnant women 10 years before the Girl Scout murders. That's the kind of stuff that Gene Hart was responsible for. Hart was given parole after serving just two and a half years in prison for that crime. Sheriff Reed says the conspiracy theories surrounding this case over the years have been endless, and he agreed to look at this case for one reason, the families. Sherry Farmer has felt the pain of this crime for 45 years. She says she and her husband, Bo, have some peace, but there will never be closure. She spoke exclusively to me a month ago about that pain. Let's say journey I wouldn't wish on anyone. Oh, it's shocking. It's different than a death. It's different than a loss because our daughter was murdered. It was intentional. And she died with two other little girls that we don't want to forget either. Now, Gene Leroy Hart uh, died in prison just months after he was acquitted of those murders. He was in prison for another crime. So, Reagan, a lot of people are going to say, okay, so this evidence is finally conclusive. But they're not willing investigators just yet to call it closed. Now, why is that? Well, first of all, the sheriff wants to emphasize and make it very clear that everything has been tested. There's nothing else out there that hasn't been tested. It's been tested by the best labs out there. There's no new special DNA testing that would give them a more conclusive result. Um, as far as the whole cl case closed deal, they've decided that the DA's office, the sheriff's office, OSBI investigators, and the families, that's the most important thing, are going to have a group discussion and sit down, and they want to come to a unified 100% decision to either close the case or leave it open. The concerns with closing the case is if somebody maybe has information out there and they don't want it to appear that the case is closed and nothing new can happen, but they're confident in the information they have. Okay, and this is just a small look at what you've been working on for months. So when are we gonna see this real, more of this? Yeah, I'll have a much more in-depth look at this investigation, the evidence, um, and even into Gene Leroy Hart. Um, Sheriff Mike Reed spent a long time looking into his past, and I'll have much more on that coming up Monday night. Monday night, we are looking forward to that. Thank you, Reagan. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week to episode 100 and whatever it is. I'm not even sure anymore. But again, major 
appreciation to all the people who showed up at CrimeCon last weekend. It was awesome to see everybody and to meet some of the new fans as well as the listeners and just kind of spread the word about the show as well as killer podcasts. Many thanks to David and Gerardo from Evergreen Podcasts who made the weekend absolutely incredible and to all the podcasters that I have become friends with along the way. It was great to see all your successes and I am happy to say that you guys have been on this train for a while and it's great to see all the awards and growth that you've had. So again, if you've never done it, please check it out. Uh, next year will be 2023 in Orlando. So definitely worth checking out. If you guys want to help support the podcast, you can reach me at bill-huffman-3. That's via Venmo. Any contribution, big or small, helps make these Silburn podcasts run. Or you can always leave a five-star review on wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Those help keep the spotlight on the cases that I cover. So again, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at BillHuffman3. You'll get updates on cases as well as what I've got coming down the pipeline. So again, thank you so much for everyone who came to CrimeCon last week. Kudos to all the podcasters and every thing that they're doing for all of the unsolved cases in this country there are way too many of them so if we can only be there to provide a voice for the voiceless and help solve some of these unsolved cases i think we all do something good so again as always you guys have a great week stay healthy and be safe I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now. you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. -S.